0: Welcome to the Humor in Games Podcast, an analog and video games podcast about how humor is experienced, designed, and analyzed in games. We are Scott DeYoung, Mark Laziness, and Andre Zanescu, and we'll be your guides in this six episode series. Throughout each episode, we'll break down different theories and forms of humor. We'll draw on interviews with designers, critics, and academics as they discuss the different aspects of humor, their own lived experiences, and how their work utilizes humor in games. Today's episode is going to focus on the idea that humor can form communities or collectives. We want to highlight how humor within games presents individual and collective values that bring people together through laughter. We want to touch on a concept known as constitutive rhetoric which the authors Whitney Phillips and Ryan Milner have employed in the context of memes. According to them, memes are visual images with a text that use pop-cultural references to make a statement, typically one that is funny and or ironic. And because memes use visuals that people might recognize from a movie or a TV show alongside words that change the meaning into something humorous, they are an effective template to make jokes about specific values. Constitutive Rhetoric in the context of humor understands that jokes present specific ideas, values or opinions that resonate and form a targeted audience. Dr. Kishona Gray discussed a broad example of this in the context of the game Grand Theft Auto, where player interpretations of the game clearly vary between black and white culture. She said,
1: the only game that I could think of was GTA. GTA would be the game that I would say I I find I would I would define as like a humorous game um, that we can engage in, right? So whether you know people think it's like a real you know it's it's you know close to real life or it's like satire and it's like a parody of you know like you know the black experience in in, the, in America, um, you know that 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 could be the case. But the thing that I think makes it so funny, like for black people, is that. It 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 really it took like this look at like just the everydayness of what it means to be like black, and it like just like sensationalized it right. So for instance, engagements with the police. Think about how thirsty the police are like when the black character comes around right there immediately on him whereas like when you're playing like you know like the white character you know they're not as aggressive now some people will be like oh my gosh this is so awful oh my gosh we have to like address this black people laughed at that we laughed because it's like this is true this is true maybe somebody else will like finally see like the things that, that like we're, we've experienced like the things that we're talking about right um, and I also think that you know. So, for instance, you know, the black character, you know, when we engage him, you know, he still lives in the hood. He lives in like in the ghetto, and he lives in like a very like a shanty town, right? Now, granted, any any other other per- person who's like looking at this, like, would be like, oh my gosh, the poor condition of these black folks. Oh my gosh, they live like this. Oh my gosh, what do we need to do to help? Black folks are laughing because we're like, ah, that's hilarious. That looks like the bodega right there. That look, that's that's my granny house right there. Like, like we're like laughing because you know, here it is. You know, our actual life is just being like try- trying to, you know, people are trying to make like these lives like legible to like like these folks. Right. And yeah. like recognizing that they would never be able to capture the holistic nature, still just like superficial, like surface level. Right. So we have to laugh at it.
0: Dr. Gray's discussion emphasizes the varied responses and perspectives that players have towards content. As they argue, GTA presents an essentialized and superficial image of the Black experience. For some, this depiction isn't funny at all. For others, they're laughing at how essentialized the everydayness of being Black is in the game. If you remember back to episode 1, Dr. Grey highlighted Kevin Hart's laugh at my pain. In this conversation about GTA, she expands on that idea to discuss the need to laugh at these interpretations because of how problematic they are. This argument highlights the variance in interpretation that humor in games have. Dr. Gray's example of laughter is specific to a community of players, and as they note, not every player of GTA is finding these moments as humorous. This is important to consider in the games we play or create. Different communities will engage with content, bonding around ideas for various reasons. In the example of GTA, community humor bonded through the hyper-real essentialism of aspects of black experience and popular culture. But it's important to remember that it isn't just a black audience laughing at these elements. Thinking back to episode 1, what may be self-reflected jokes to a black audience playing Grand Theft Auto may become jokes at the expense of an outgroup when these essentialized elements are interpreted by players who don't understand the essentialized and hyper-real elements of what is being depicted in GTA. Continuing this, Dietrich Squinkifer, also known as Squinky, takes this notion of community creation one step further. To them, the social bonds created by humor are derived from individual interpretations, which allow humor to be used as a signal to specific communities that content is made for them
2: there is uh, like uh, definitely the um, social bonds aspect to it Um, and it's also kind of a way that like because um, humor is incredibly subjective it's um, a way of like uh, signaling um, who I am trying to communicate with and um, like uh, I guess who my audience is my like my sense of humor um is very much a product of like me and my circumstances and the people I am uh in community with. So um like humor is kind of a way to like signal to me- to members of communities I'm part of that um like hey this is like this is a game for you. Um and like when you're part of communities who don't like historically have a lot of like games made for them um or who aren't like the kind of audience that um like big game companies have in mind when they make games um this is kind of a way of being like like hey this is this is a game for you
0: So humor can actually be used in very specific ways to form a community. Social bonds created through funny content can be used to engage with specific audiences and bring people together around an issue. Coming back to constitutive humor, we can understand how games use specific moments that target specific players, which in turn create a community that laughs at similar content. Designer and scholar Edith Hoff reflects on this when they discuss feminist humor. A feminist humor, or
3: there are many kinds of humors that are positioned at the margins um, that, that we understand in parallel to the mainstream humor. I mean, I, and I think that's the case, right? We don't all share the same humor, which I think yeah. is
0: OK. The idea of humor positioned at the margins helps encompass what Ida, Squinky, and Dr. Gray are getting at. Communities form around jokes or interpretations of jokes that directly challenge the mainstream tropes or stereotypes that are dominant in games or just culture generally. So far it's fair to say that humor is useful in helping individuals laugh together around a punchline as it was designed or specifically interpreted by a particular community. Dr. Gray's earlier example of GTA was focused on a relatively general game and the varied interpretations and relationships to it. However, continuing with the suggestions of Ida and Squinky, we can begin to understand the collective as a much smaller group. A good example of this experience is Ida Toff's collaborative game, "Can't Touch This.
3: Yeah, uh, it was it was my very first unity game that I made over a weekend, together with uh, three other friends. And um, it's basically well I think about it as a meditative drawing game in which you so ticker in in the 60s, uh, she drew, she made a coloring book, well, she drew her friends, um, vulvas. Like very, very detailed, very beautiful, like when you look through this coloring book it's it's very beautiful, and you can just see how much diversity there are
0: mm-hmm.
3: um and my friend had brought this one. we were at a game jam in a rural area in Denmark, and my friend had brought this one, and we were sitting in this you know our um lo- our locker room our, where we were sleeping, and we were just you know browsing through this, and we thought it was really... You know, beautiful and funny and interesting. and and because I didn't have that much, I didn't have any programming skills in Unity, so I was just like, okay, let's you know make it into a drawing game. And um, and that's what it is. It's a very, very simple game. You it's for tablets, like for touch touch screens, and you kind of draw draw these boulevards. And, um, and then there's one sound effect, <laughs> which is very, um, evocative and, uh, yeah, and that's it. And then when you have over a certain amount of time, it kind of explodes into this orgasm and that's it. And, um, and, and that when we were making that, it was, we were very much in our own bubble, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't in, in a game jam that is male dominated and all that but we were in our own bubble of having our own jokes and just prioritizing each other and um and then I remember at at the end of the game jam there was it was like this bubble just burst because suddenly there was like a lot of I don't know, there was just like a lot of drama around this game. It, it won some kind of award and some people got really angry and started discussing and then the person who gave the award broke down in tears and it was like so dramatic. And and um, and it was such a contrast between like this meditative drawing uh, experience that we were aiming for and then the kind of shock value that this cunt game suddenly had time okay. we have developed this concept of proception, uh, <laughs> which is this idea of um, the way that this game has been perceived by male audiences as this yeah, I don't know like in many different ways but as this like shocking kind of humorous uh, awkward embarrassing shocking kind of statement whereas for us it was a very meditative healing. Kind of
0: experience. So cut touch this, and the reception to it is a strong reflection of how humor can be deeply tied to subject position, or in other words, individual experiences. For these independent designers, humor within games is a balance between them and their audience, a balance that typically leans towards the designer's preference. This is reflected when Squinky discusses their relationship between their design process and audience.
2: I, a lot of myself into my games but the reason i'm making games in the first place is um so that i can share them with others and so i can communicate something to others so i am thinking about my audience but um also thinking about like uh it's like i'm not necessarily thinking about creating something universal because that doesn't actually exist um i'm thinking about like it's like Especially like um, as a kid, like growing up pretty lonely and misunderstood for a lot of reasons. Um, Like one of my driving forces when I decided to like uh, start making art and games and sharing it with other people is like, I want to find other people who are like me and who understand like my experiences and what I've gone through and my sense of humor. because like a lot of a lot of games a lot of art aren't ma- necessarily made with uh, people like me in mind um so yes i am thinking about my audience but i am trying to like like kind of with the intent of finding my people if that makes any sense
0: If we connect what both Squinky and Ida are saying as independent designers, humor in games creates a shared space of laughter that is between them, the designer, and their specific audience. The option to find one's people through humor is important for curating the space. However, Squinky and Ida are able to do this because they're independent designers and not large game companies. The idea of a targeted audience humor that can challenge dominant norms or make a political statement is a much more challenging task for a AAA game studio. Osama Dorius, the lead designer for the Warner Brothers game Gotham Knights, discusses the difficulties that these companies have in designing humor.
4: Across any of the studios I worked in, like at GameLoft, uh, we had a list of things, that were, topics that we couldn't bring up. And uh, there are a lot of reasons for this, of course, but mostly it's just to mitigate risk. I mean, it's, a, it's a risk reward. It's a business. The people have. Uh, this is the, the primary goal of these big companies, obviously, is to make money. So if the um if the controversy is likely to lose sales that's the thing that's going to end up on the cutting room floor while for indies um like especially smaller indies where it's like you know they're more of an, a label like a, a, an art a, artistic lab, like artistic uh endeavor so they're more like no this is the messaging i want to get across uh that kind of like in, a, in bigger productions um the goal is more to stay safe. And that makes a lot of sense. It's the same reason why we have like big productions that are more sequels, because that's more likely to be easier to market. And uh, like it follows the trends. Like don't just don't take the risk, don't rock the boat. um, Like unless it's calculated and unless we have, like like, I'm not saying don't take any risk at all. I mean, for something like this, why would it doesn't actually bring anything to your game? uh just like leave it out especially because they're like they're, the reach of triple games is so much wider you have to find something that doesn't offend almost literally the entire globe right like i know that's impossible but like there's a venn diagram of uh, <laughs> of uh what doesn't offend anyone at all that's very very tiny uh, right. so it's more about the bell curve where what can you get that's near the middle of that
0: Brendan Keough echoes Osama's point, emphasising how the specificity of humour varies between AAA and independent games. AAA
5: has so many different issues, I guess when it comes to designing humour, designing anything, like firstly, the joke has to survive from the writer through the designer to the designer's lead to the creative director to the marketing person two countries away who has the editorial decision on and who has the spreadsheets about what's gonna sell and what's not gonna sell. Um, and then they they have their fixation on photorealism and the simulation working as prop uh, as designed. And and they, you know, they can't be too offensive like for wrong way, but they they can't piss off that gamer audience that I've spent twenty, thirty years cultivating. So they're kind of like, most of the time kind of like hamstrung into a certain kind of humour, which is more for Grand Theft Auto, 14-year-old boy humour, because that remains the primary consumer demographic that AAA depends on, and which has put itself into a situation where it depends on it, as various researchers have kind of shown. Um, whereas, yeah, like an indie developer or, or a hobbyist or an amateur developer, an artist developer, like, whichever way you want to split those, can just be like, I have an idea for a joke, jump onto Unity in half an hour, have done the bare minimum for that joke and just put that on on Itchio and be like, here it is, here's the joke. And then, again, thanks to meme culture, thanks to all that, it can still spread quite easily. So, yeah, I, I think, like, production environment is absolutely going to in some way shape what kinds of humor you're more likely to produce. Um yeah and i think just like the triple a environment again speaking very very broadly is kind of is, is is quite is so rigid in what it can and can't produce and and it has to be if it's going to return the amount of money investors require and whatnot so it's not really anyone's there yeah. so, so like yeah it's, sorry where am i going with that yeah so because of that return on investment it just is, has to play it safe, has to play it conservatively, and that kind of determines what can and can't... Well, not what can and can't happen, but what is more and less likely to happen in that space. And I think that's why I see in, like, AAA games or whatever, most common humour, I think, is just this, like, punching down um, pseudo-satirical humour. It just hasn't figured out power exists yet. And, like, Grand Theft Auto is kind of a classic example where it's, you know, making fun of you know, right-wing politicians and um, poor refugee communities with the exact same brush and, like, doing kind of satire but doesn't seem in any way aware when that satire is actually directed at a meaningful target and when it's just punching down and not in any way helpful. And so you kind of get that conservative pseudo-satire in a lot of AAA video games, I think. A, because for target audience. With 14-year-old boys, and B, because 14-year-old boys. Um, so, um, like, who who were the 14-year-old boys not very long ago? Yeah. So, yeah, and I think that's why that's still probably the most common kind of humor in, in at least AAA video games.
0: So there is a clear distinction going on here. On the one hand, we have independent creators who are making content that they want to make with a niche audience in mind, or perhaps no audience at all. And on the other hand, we have large game companies trying to make humor that fits for everyone. However, as Brendan suggested, this everyone is really more a targeted group of typically young men. Large game companies set the baseline of what humor is in games. Dr. Goshona Gray reflects on this.
1: Because I'm even thinking about what people find funny in these games. It's really like that. You know, I I call it like dude comedy. You know, I really think it was just like this particular brand of like white masculinity that does like just these over the top kind of like 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 the cultural stupid even. You know what I'm saying? Like just think about like the things that are very popular, like on YouTube and think about like these particular influencers that are like popular. They're just doing some of the silliest things. They're engaging on like the silliest pranks. And that's just not stuff that like for the most part black people find funny. And I think what's what's even more like like depressing is whenever I see like these black, you know, um, influencers and these black, you know, figures in, in these spaces adopt those same kind of practices, because those are the things that are going to get them hits and clicks and followers and likes and people with the, to subscribe, you know, hit that hit that like button, whatever they're doing, you know, those they, they really have to they're catering to a to a, a white template of like what what's acceptable in those spaces.
0: Popular games and the culture around them create an expectation of humor. As Dr. Gray suggests, players and content creators adapt to the norms based on what is funny, what makes them money, and what is commonly seen or understood as a joke. This is a cause for concern, because not everyone finds this humor funny. If you remember back to the beginning of this episode, we talked about essentialized humor and humor at the margins. The idea that humor exists to signal to specific communities and run counter to this culture of the stupid or dude-bra comedy. What Dr. Gray emphasizes here is how influential dude-bra comedy is. The value of engaging in this typically white, straight, and male-focused form of humor can start to impact how other communities engage with humor. However, it is important that we have this humor at the margins. As earlier episodes discussed, jokes create in groups and out groups, and dude bra humor is no exception. This popular space of humor can actually be quite problematic, especially for individuals who exist in an out group. As Squinky reflects, this humor can be quite harmful, especially when you grow up surrounded by this type of humor.
2: I have definitely like um, experienced jokes um, like in games but also in general that are like meant to hurt people or mock people like me. Um like uh like jokes against trans people, um like like making fun of fat people, making fun of disabled people, like making fun of neurodivergent people. And like that is something like that kind of grew up with a lot of that kind of humor and um it was like i didn't understand at the time like how hurtful it was um but uh like it definitely fed into like a lot of like internalized self-hatred um and that is absolutely something that i don't want to express in my own work i don't want to like hurt um for anyone who doesn't deserve it, honestly.
0: So humor can be internalized. Our understandings of what is funny is related to the content we engage with as we grow up. Squinkie's reflection emphasizes the value of considering our audiences and the in-groups and out-groups that might engage with our content. As Squinkie mentioned earlier in the episode, humor creates social bonds and can signal to people that they are included in a joke. Creating games that engage with humor at the margins by critiquing these dominant and harmful forms of humor is just one step. For a designer like Squinky, the content they produce and how humor is embedded in it needs to actively consider the audience's reaction. Another independent creator, Narf, brings this back to Philip and Milner's concept of constitutive humor by discussing memes. As a reminder, memes are typically images with superimposed text that reference a specific event, experience, or idea to its audience. When relating them to games, Narf states... Oh, I guess, but I guess when you make that, those kind of images, it's still the same process. You're still thinking about the audience.
4: Right.
2: Like, when I make a joke about the tools that we use at work that is terrible and slow, and I share the joke with my coworkers, I know they will find it funny. I don't share the same images with other people because they won't get the joke. So in a way, it's very similar. You think you always think about the audience.
0: It's time to revisit the focus of this episode, that humor is constitutive. Or in other words, that humor and games have designed values and ideas that help form social bonds and identity. Through the symbols, actions and goals of a game, humor brings players together. Importantly, the desire to maintain revenue for large game companies has created a baseline humor, or a humor for all, whereas independent designers or creators have the freedom to make a targeted or specific joke in their content. While the episode is focused on this idea of collective humor, it's important to consider one's individual position. What I mean is one's position in creating the game and its jokes, and another in how we individually find things funny. Any collective is created through individuals who share common values or goals. How we relate or struggle to relate to humor, frames will resonate with us when we come across it. Games offer such highly interactive and social frameworks to present humor. Considering this, the idea of humor for all isn't really for everyone. The jokes being made, whether intentional or not, will always include some people and exclude others. For these large companies, while they might try humor for all, it's really impossible, and it still typically results in humor for a specific demographic, young men. Of course, it is unsurprising that our interpretations of humour vary, and in that variance we find commonality. As game designers or players, we should consider what we find funny and why we find it funny. I ask you to question what jokes are being made and try to see who is included and who is not. Ask yourself what you find funny and why, or perhaps, even more importantly, ask yourself what are you supposed to find funny and why. Thanks for tuning in. Next time on the Humor and Games podcast, we will be talking about the relationship between humor and live streaming. Hope to see you there. I want to give a special thanks to our collaborators for this episode. Dr. Kishona Gray, Dietrich Swinkefer, Dr. Brennan Keo, Ida Toft, Osama Dorius, and Nerf.